A human rights activist from Ukraine visited us earlier this month, and we arranged and recorded a public seminar. The topic was Ukraine's civil society and the documentation of war crimes. My name is Karina Shirokich. I will be moderating this talk. I'm Associate Professor in International Relations at Stockholm University. Before we start, I would like to speak everyone's mind, I would assume, and I would like to express my admiration and gratitude to the Ukrainian nation for its courageous fight for its and our security, freedom and democracy, and a special thanks to Ukrainian civil society. On February 28, Russian Federation has launched a war of aggression against Ukraine. Since then, we saw repeated and systematic war crimes committed by Russian soldiers. Horrendous war crimes include rapes, deportations, kidnappings, torture of civilian men, women and children. And these are countless. As a result of these actions, the European Parliament, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, the Parliamentary Committee of NATO and individual member states of the EU recognized Russia as a sponsor of terrorism and a terrorist state. Ukrainian President Zelensky declared Russia uh, a terrorist state, saying that Russia, Russian war crimes in Ukraine amount to a genocide. And today we will be talking about these war crimes and the role of civil society organizations in Ukraine in these very unfortunate circumstances. And today we have with us a human rights activist, Onisia Sinyuk, who works for an organization called Zmina. In Ukrainian it means change. Onisia studied international relations at Taras Shevchenko uh, University and she worked research question of gender-based violence in armed conflicts, in particularly since 2014 in Ukraine. And currently, Onisia works um, with forced displacements, trying to understand and count those acts. So, Onisia, welcome in Stockholm. I would like to ask you first to describe your area of work Adds Mina, but also what Zmina does. Yes, yeah, so I'm very grateful to be here. I'm very grateful that you found the time to visit this event. And um, speaking about uh, our work in Zmina, uh, we've always worked with human rights in Ukraine. It meant domestically, and it went in the context of the uh, Russian invasion since 2014, heavily worked with uh, occupied Crimea. Uh, after the full-scale invasion, we had to scale up as well. We uh, took on new members of our team, we took on new projects, because the scale of, atroci of atrocities grew exponentially. So we uh, took on new projects, specifically we are working with forced disappearances in the occupied territories, uh, specifically of activists, active people, journalists, volunteers, uh, civil rights defenders, different activists. Um, so uh, another project we are working on is forced deportations and forced transfers of population. And that means both within the occupied territories, people are brought around, and uh, during the occupation of the Kyiv region, there were some transfers to Belarus, 
and now it's a constant um, chain of transfer to Russia. So that, that are, those are our main focuses in uh, documenting, in um, advocating, and uh, working with those whose rights were violated. Thank you. Um, do we know what are the target groups? What are those groups of people that are being um, forcefully um, deported uh, or forcefully transferred? Are these mainly adults? Are these women? Are these men, children? And do we understand anything about the scale? Do we know any numbers of those who were forcefully transferred? This is one of the biggest challenges in our work, actually, because um, Ukraine does not have access to Russian territory and has very limited access to occupied territories. So the only way we can know what is happening in the occupied territories is from people still staying there who are risking their lives to give this information to us. Because their phones are constantly checked, they have to delete all the messages so that um, Russian soldiers and uh, um, law enforcement in, uh, of the occupational administration uh, would not see that they are contacting anyone on the territory of Ukraine. Very often they do not even have the mobile service or any means to communicate with those in the, uh, in the territories under the control of Ukraine. As for the, um, our people in Russia, it's even harder because um, Ukraine currently doesn't have an embassy neither a consulate in Russia, so no way to protect our citizens there. And uh, when uh, Ukraine reached out to Switzerland, to make Switzerland an intermediary between Ukraine and Russia to protect our citizens in Russia, Russia unfortunately refused to uh, designate Switzerland as such. So the only thing we can do, we're trying to find contacts with civil society that is willing to work with us, but it's an ongoing process and it's an ongoing process. So at the moment, the only way we have to know about approximate estimates that are accurate uh, is uh, that Ukraine established a National Information Bureau according to the Geneva Convention. And they are receiving reports from witnesses, from those who know that their relatives have been deported or transferred or are missing in the occupied territories. So that is the only way we can count. There is a, a website specifically for uh, children that were deported or forcefully transferred. It's called Children of War. It's a Ukrainian government website that displays this information and is updated regularly on the information that they receive. The, all the other information that we have in terms of the counts by uh, international organizations, for example, the, the UN is doing some counting, but it's not their counting. They're just taking the official numbers that Russia is reporting. And that cannot be an accurate number, uh, specifically because Russia is calling all of these transfers evacuation. Of course, there are some people that uh, willingly went to Russia. There are also some people that knew they had no chance reaching Ukraine because uh, Russian soldiers and Russia, uh, Russian administrations in occupied territories prevent them from going to the Ukrainian territory and uh, permit them to evacuate only to the Russian territory. So they knew that to reach Ukraine or other EU countries, they had to go through Crimea, for example, or Russia. And there are those who were forcefully transferred, specifically, taken out of shelters and brought into evacuation buses. They were lied to that they will, would be going to Ukraine, and they, would not, uh, they were not let out of the buses when they finally knew that they were going to Russia, not Ukraine. So there are a lot of um, cases of how it can happen. 
and in terms of uh, different people that are getting deported, it's all of them. It's elderly people, it's um, adults, it's young people, and it's children. And children is the most vulnerable group here because they cannot consent and they cannot fight this deportation in any way. Adults are also forced, they have um, physical force applied to them sometimes, they have psychological pressure applied to them in order to um, be evacuated. But in terms of children, they are just kidnapped, basically, because they do not have any power to consent. And the hardest part is adults can reach out, out of Russia, out of occupied territories to us. They have a lot of difficulties with that because they usually do not have means. They do not have money to reach the borders to EU countries or the Ukrainian border. They uh, sometimes have lost the, all of their belongings and their phones in shellings, in bombings. So it's hard for them as well, but they are still adults. They are still capable of doing it themselves. As for the children, there is no way they can reach out to the Ukrainian side. Even if they have relatives, they are not permitted to contact them. So that is the biggest problem. Thank you. You already started covering that uh, in some way. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the main challenges. If I would ask you about three top challenges that you have with collecting and verifying the data, yeah? What are those? But also, you also mentioned that you have some cooperation partners. So can you please develop on who are those partners among the governmental organizations and agencies, intergovernmental organizations, perhaps other actors? The main challenges, I think, as I mentioned, and I will um, specify them, is the access to occupied territories. We do not have that. We have only case-by-case -case access. If there are active people, if there are perhaps even relatives in the occupied territories that have um, the ability to reach out, because not all of them have that ability. Sometimes uh, we're able to collect evidence and testimonies from people who already went through the process and managed to escape through the Estonian border, through, uh, Georgian, uh, through Georgia, through Kazakhstan. People are finding different ways to get out of Russia and get back to the EU countries or to Ukraine. And then they reach out to us to tell about the experience so other people know how they can also escape. That is one of the ways. But um, in terms of access to um, our people in Russia, that is the biggest challenge. As I mentioned, there is no point of contact and Russia is not disclosing any information, especially about children. Even if children have relatives in Ukraine, even parents in Ukraine, because some of the children were taken out of boarding schools. So these are not children deprived of parental care. They have children and the Russian side admits that they have, uh, that they have parents in Ukraine and they still do not tell these parents any of the information, where the, were these children moved, under which names they were registered in these institutions. So that is the biggest challenge. We have no way of cooperating or finding these people. And in terms of our partners, we are uh, thankful that, first of all, uh, Zmina is part of um, a big informal coalition of Ukrainian uh, civil rights organizations. It's called Ukraine 5 AM. Uh, we are very active. It was started right after the full-scale invasion as a response to it, because we knew that we will have a lot of work to do and we needed to coordinate in order to cover the most ground. Because all of these organizations work with human rights, but they all have their specific focuses and specific qualifications. So some of the organizations work more heavily with the question of children, 
Some of them work more heavily with specifically the filtration process that also uh, is involved in the deportations and forcible transfers. Some of them have even legal practitioners that can uh, follow the cases in courts and um, contact lawyers in the occupied territories that are still trying to fight for the people in the occupied ter territories, even though the whole processes are rigged. And uh, in terms of uh, governmental institutions, we're also very grateful, especially in the topic of deportations and forcible transfers, that the Ukrainian government was very proactive in doing everything we can on our side to ensure that at least at the borders, people are let through. So even if they don't have documentation that confirm they are Ukrainian citizens, that they don't have identification, we now have uh, successfully uh, implemented um, a simplified process so they can receive a temporary identification um, pass at uh, different uh, different embassies in different countries so they can still cross the border to ukraine so that is that is part of our, what is what gives us hope in terms of we're doing everything everything we can but we're still trying to find ways to um speed line this process to make it possible to reach our people in Russia and Belarus. My next question I wanted to ask you uh, relates to criminal justice, international criminal justice in particular. You have described horrendous war crimes that are committed uh, by the Russian Federation in Ukraine currently. And in this context, I'm wondering about the legal basis to bring Russia uh, to responsibility for all of these war crimes. So basically how to seek justice, what instruments do you see? Are there any precedents in history from which we can learn and uh, maybe implement something in this situation? Um, it's important to note that we already um, have some instruments, so it's very important to use all of them available to us. That means the uh, system of the International Criminal Court, that means even the cases in the International Court of Justice, which at least serve as bringing attention to the issues we're discussing. And of course, it's very heavily the domestic process, because um, the International Criminal Court will choose several high-profile cases that they will work, work on and um, process. But for the um, approximately the last time I checked, the number was 55,000 cases of war crimes, uh, noted down by uh, Ukrainian law enforcement, that will have to be processed domestically. There is no other way to deal with these cases with the help of our partners as well through the uh, universal jurisdiction. That, is, that also is an opportunity for us to um, relieve a bit uh, our system because it is heavily overwhelmed with the number of cases. But there is one crime that has no possible avenue at the moment. It's the crime that started all the other crimes, without which the war crimes would not be possible. It's the crime of aggression. The crime that started in 2014 with Crimea and the east of Ukraine. So for that, we're working heavily on establishing a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. And um, that is uh, also one of the reasons, I think, that uh, Russia fell in punity in uh, invading other countries, because the crime of aggression has been ignored for a very long time. Since the Nuremberg tri Tribunal, it was not mentioned at any of the 
uh, venues except I guess the making a definition and making it possible through their own statute to have it but very a very little number of countries actually signed the amendment that permits the prosecution of the crime of aggression and um, almost I think it's only two members of the Security Council that signed it all the other ones did not sign it and the criminal court has no power over investigating their crimes so the special tribunal would be a big part of bringing back the power of international law to the international stage not just politics and in this context what is the role of international partners as you call them other countries such as Sweden or civil society in those other countries in helping Ukraine uh, to maybe bring closer in the time perspective the justice there are a lot of avenues that uh, partners are already helping and we are incredibly grateful for that help and that support and that they can further support us uh, it is very important to mention that um, there is no justice without um, security and um, the first part of bringing justice to those who were wrong is restoring the situation that was before the violation and that means deoccupying all of the Ukrainian territories that were occupied by Russia. And that means support in the political sense of um, the Ukrainians' vision of how justice should be brought. And it also means uh, weapons to bring this reality, uh, to, to bring it to reality. Because we need defensive weapons in terms of protecting our critical infrastructure. We are going into a very cold winter. Winters are also cold in Ukraine. And uh, a lot of people have uh, lost access to electricity. And that means losing access to heating. For some, it means losing access to water. So it is a very hard humanitarian situation. So we, we desperately need uh, the weapons to protect our critical infrastructure. But we also know, uh, need um, offensive weapons to deoccupy those territories. Because we know that there is no peace for those territories and those people that live in those territories without bringing them back under Ukrainian control. We see what happens to people in the occupied territories under Russian rule. And we are first and foremost concerned about people that are staying there and people who are forced to leave and still want to return to those territories because this is their home. So this is, I think, like the first stage of the support. The other one is, of course, the uh, legal support. Uh, supporting the cases in the International Criminal Court, in the International Court of Justice, on the political stage, putting pres pressure on Russia to uh, re uh, release information about our people in Russia, about our children, to uh, force them to return those, um, those people and those children, to let them uh, out of the country. It's also, um, I think, very important to talk about the... Um, Russian assets that are in different countries that can be used for uh, compensation and reparations for Ukrainian people that have lost their homes, that have lost their um, any means to live in this situation. So that is also one part. And in, in the moment, in, in building the um, accountability process at the moment, helping the Ukrainian system that is overwhelmed by the number of cases, by the number of equipment they need to investigate those cases, to come to specific fields and gather evidence 
For example, unfortunately, when the churches are deoccupied, law enforcement find a lot of mass graves. And they need to identify those people to bring justice to their relatives and their loved ones. So they need a lot of equipment for uh, DNA sampling. They need a lot of equipment to go to these uh, territories because these are not just big cities. These are small towns, these are small villages that they need to reach in order to record all, all those crimes. So that is also part of the problem. And of course, it's looking into the future because when we talk about Ukrainian victory, it's when, not if. So we will need to think about rebuilding and uh, transitional justice for all of the territories in Ukraine. And we will also be uh, needing support and um, we will need support and assistance in that as well. And if we talk about this topic in more concrete terms, so what organizations such as Earth Group Plan can do to help organizations such as Zmina? The civil society manages pretty well because uh, the civil society in Ukraine is uh, a very strong and prominent one. Since 2014, we've, we've been building it up very heavily. So in terms of capacity, I think we are um, very well developed at this moment. But we uh, still need support in implementing the ideas and the projects that we have. Because uh, unfortunately, at this moment, we have a lot of new issues that rose up that were unexpected. When we started our projects, and uh, they are usually long-term projects, they did not foresee a full-scale invasion. So now we have to adjust, we have to find new resources, we have to hire new people so that they can, those who are professional in documenting. So we'll need, um, it means financial resources, it means um, contacts, so that we will be able to advocate for our causes more effectively uh, abroad and um, with foreign partners as well. And in terms of the um, government institutions, I think they also need that support because uh, they've been receiving very heavy support on the, in the political sphere. But um, sometimes there are cases when there is only one actor who is not supporting the decision and the whole decision is blocked. So there is um, also a need for putting pressure on all of the countries to um, move these urgent issues forward. Uh, there's also uh, support, as I mentioned, for the law enforcement, for the prosecutors. It means uh, expert support, international experts who are well-versed in, in investigating violent crimes, in investigating conflict-related crimes, coming and helping our uh, prosecutors, our law enforcement, um, learn the proper procedures, uh, follow them. Uh, it also means uh, providing them with additional equipment to do that. As I mentioned, there are unfortunately a lot of mass graves, a lot of other violent crimes that need specific equipment for these crimes to be processed. And it's also even, it can even be uh, those prosecutors, those investigators specifically coming to Ukraine and um, working alone with our law enforcement, our prosecutors to also gain some experience, I guess, in uh, these spheres for them as well, and uh, to share their experience and their knowledge with uh, our workers. And if we were to put the current war of aggression in some historical contexts or contexts of other wars uh, with war crimes, um, can you make any parallels for us so we can better understand how the process of post 
conflict transition can can take place? What role can international actors play? Are there any experiences for us to learn from? I think you don't need to go very far for those comparisons, even though um, I'm not a very big fan of specific comparisons because situations are very different always. It depends on the era the conflict is happening in, it depends on the aggressor and the victim, but uh, I would prefer to say those fighting back, not a victim. And, uh, um, but I think that uh, what we need to talk about in this context is uh, colonialism and imperialism. Because this war of aggression was not actually a surprise for anyone in terms of geopolitics or the attitudes in societies. This was not the first crime of aggression Russia committed in the 21st century. They started far back. I wouldn't go in the far history, but we can start with Chechnya, that they did not get any accountability for. Then we had Georgia. That was, not that was also left without accountability. Then it was again Ukraine in 2014, and the international community unfortunately went business as usual with Russia, and they felt that impunity, that power to go further. That's why this war of aggression was made possible, because there was a feeling of no consequences for violating international law, for committing crimes and taking land in, um, even in the new security process. So that is also something we will need to think about, that our system of security in the world currently is not working. And for this to not happen anymore, we'll need to um, work on demanding that as well. And what would be your main three takes, three uh, messages that you would want to communicate to the Swedish society, how to help, what to do? to ease on this process and make it uh, happen faster, I mean, post-conflict transition? I think that um, since I've been talking in detail, I will go a bit more general and a bit more... Um, I think the, the most important things are, first of all, to listen specifically to people from Ukraine. There, there's... Um, recently, I think it's changing now that I'm very happy to see that, but there was this notion of um, commonality of the Eastern Bloc, that we are all the same, that we need the same attitudes, the same help, that uh, the situation in societies and in the governments are the same. So we can be treated as one entity. That is also part of uh, the propaganda that Russia is spreading, that we are one nation and we can be treated as such. So I think the, one of the most important things is to listen to Ukrainians, how they talk about their experiences, how they talk about what they need because sometimes there can be some patronization. We know better what you need to deal with this situation. It is better to listen to those on the ground. And the other uh, thing I think is that it is also important to talk. Talk in the private level with your friends, with your relatives, anybody who is interested to listen. Talk to them about the situation and about what is going on, the violations and what they specifically can do to change that. If you have any uh, friends in academic circles, so they can spread that in the academic sphere. Any friends in the political sphere. So anybody you can talk to at any level, please do and talk about Ukraine and advocate for it. I, I think it, there was only two things, but I think they are the most important ones. Earlier, you mentioned about the importance of providing 
weapon for Ukraine to be able to not only protect its civilian population, um, its territory, but also to protect the critical infrastructure. Um, in different countries, and Sweden here wouldn't be an exemption, there were different discussions about weapon supply. And uh, in Sweden, as we all recall, there were debates about whether to supply Ukraine with weapon to help Ukraine protect its territory and civilian population. And some organizations, even among civil society organizations, they quite actively advocated for not supporting Ukraine with weapon. So what is your take on that? I think this is also a part of um, what I mentioned before about recommendations in terms of not listening to people on the ground and um, knowing better what to how they should deal with the situation. Because even the peace we get uh, talked to about is the peace not on our terms. So when people say that we should talk about peace already, they mean that we will we should leave the territories that are occupied at the moment under Russians rule and uh, that is there is a very different perspective on how we see it in Ukraine and abroad I think because when people are talking about it abroad they are talking about territories that we want to take back our territories when we talk about it in Ukraine we're thinking primarily and first of all about our people in those territories those who are staying there, those who have relatives there, those who couldn't leave, those Crimean Tatars in Crimea who were already deported from their place and they just had the chance to come back and build up their communities there again and are forced to leave once more and forced to leave under the oppression they experienced uh, almost a century ago. So we are, we are thinking primarily about those things. And there is no way at the current moment with Russia's position to have a peace with, in, in terms of which Russia gives back those territories. They will not give back those territories without Ukraine deoccupying them by force. That's why weapons are essential for the survival of the people in the occupied territories. And the defensive weapons are essential for the survival of all the people in Ukraine. Because it doesn't mean only um, people are not dying only in the frontline cities. They are dying all over the country. There is no safe city in Ukraine at the moment. You can be sitting in the most western part in Ukraine and have a bomb, bomb drop, on your, drop on your head. That's what happened actually to a lot of people who are fleeing Kharkiv, the city in the very east of Ukraine. They, they fled due to Russia's military actions to the western part of Ukraine. For example, to a more southern part in Vinnytsia, and they were still killed by a bomb there. Even though they evacuated, they ran away. That's why we need to have protection for all of the Ukraine, and that's why weapons are essential for our survival. There is no other way for us to survive in this war. But why do you think that some Western organizations have these views, have this active position again supporting Ukraine with weapon? I think that the, there may be different reasons for different actors. Perhaps um, some of them, we know very well how well Russian propaganda actually works. We can see it um, on the example of even those Russians that moved to other countries long time ago. They've lived in those countries for generations, but they still 
some of them think that um, what is happening right now is their right, is a right thing to do, even though they don't even live in Russia. That is just uh, a part of an ingrained um, imperialistic view that Russia is spreading. Some of those organizations, uh, I think, have a very theoretical and not a practical view of pacifism and peace and what security for the people mean. It's very easy to uh, feel safe and advocate, ag advocate against weapons in safe countries, in those that do not experience war and do not have bombs dropping on them. It is a very different matter of peace and security in those countries that are in conflict. Thank you. Um, so I would like to ask you about the major challenges that civil society and your organization, Zmina, currently face, face in Ukraine. So what are the main obstacles for you to effectively conduct your work? Yeah? And what do you do to tackle those uh, challenges? I think that um, the, biggest, the biggest challenge at this very moment uh, is the attacks on critical infrastructure. Because that means we are stopped in our tracks every day. Uh, Sometimes our uh, system is trying to save itself in terms of giving us schedules for turn-offs of electricity, but the system is overwhelmed and there are emergency cutoffs. So we usually do not have even the uh, specific clear idea of when during the day we will be able to work. We need to catch every moment that we have electricity to get some work done. And it means electricity, it means heating, it means water. It means even mobile service, because with the, uh, so much of the system overwhelmed, mobile service is also not working properly, so we can't contact our partners in different parts of the city. Sometimes we can't even call each other within one city because of the problems with mobile service. So that is one of the hugest problems uh, in our work at the moment. The other one is, of course, also the security situation for us. So every time there is an air raid siren, every time there is um, a warning of a bombing of a shelling, people need to go to the shelter again, staying there, uh, experiencing trauma again. Th that is also one of the challenges. We are uh, under constant stress that something is going to happen, that something might happen. We're also under stress of working with cases of violent crimes. We see what, what is going on, what crimes are committed. We're hearing these stories, we're reading these stories, we're analyzing these stories, and that also takes a toll. And there is not much of a time to deal with it. I, I think I've been repeating this quote for um, several meetings during the last days, but there was a very good quote that um, representatives of Somalia mentioned. They're also in constant conflict. So when everybody is talking about post-traumatic stress, there is no post at the moment. We're all, we're all in constant stress and we need to manage now and then we will deal with it later with all the consequences that it will bring. And what challenges do you face in trying to protect the rule of law in Ukraine and also trying to support those people that are the most affected by the war? I think the um, biggest challenge is the one I mentioned, the system is overwhelmed. So it means law enforcement is overwhelmed. Some of these police officers went to the front. They, they are doing the, they performing responsibilities that are usually not part of their job. They have to secure territories. They have to help a much larger number of people. 
especially when they go to deoccupied territories. So the system of law enforcement is overwhelmed. The social system is also overwhelmed because we've had uh, experience with internally displaced people since 2014, but not on this scale. We have now, as far as I remember, the last number was 2.7 million internally displaced people. So that means a lot of people come into Western cities. They are overwhelmed. Social services are overwhelmed. It's very hard to practically help everyone because of this. And um, the one thing that is important, I think, is that um, we're working on case-by-case -case basis. We're trying to catch up at the moment. But there is um, a work in progress for the vision for the future so that it comes as a system, not a patchwork, a band-aid on every situation. We're devising legisl specific legislation to deal with the internally displaced people to help them later get justice, get reparations. And um, I'm actually very happy uh, in the sense that I think the, the stress of the situation and the overwhelming, um, the, the overwhelming of the uh, situation and the activities also encouraged uh, governmental institutions to proactively reach out to us, to ask us for advice, help, assistance with devising those legislation, how it works in practice. Because um, I think that civil rights defenders are the first line of defense. People feel more comfortable coming to um, uh, human rights activists with their stories, with their problems. So we know what the challenges they face practically in the system and due to those violations. So we can also advise on how to best deal with them. And it's very important that we see that we are listened to. So now I would like to ask you for three concluding statements that you would like to once again uh, perhaps uh, uh, repeat to summarize your main takes for our audience and we will proceed to the questions. I think that um, I will also go to a bit of a general tone on this one. The first one is, uh, um, again, to listen, to read more, to um, read different information that will allow you a full picture of what is happening in Ukraine and pay the most attention to Ukrainian voices that are speaking from the ground. We have a lot of independent media in Ukraine. We have a lot of human rights media, specifically human rights media in Ukraine, that is speaking up about the violations, everything that is going on in Ukraine. The second one is to talk and to advocate. The, I think I will divide this part in several parts in terms of what? The advocating for further support that Ukraine does not slip into the uh, unknown in terms of the conflict is going too long, it will be going very long still, so there is no urgency in providing help, in providing assistance, in doing something at the moment. It is very important to do something in the moment, even in the context of the children, because they already been adopted. And after they are adopted, their details are changed, their name can be changed. Their, all of the information about them can be changed and we won't be able to find them. So there are matters of extreme urgency to deal with. And um, the advocating for the fact that um, Ukrainians should be listened to on their, for, the, for everything to be solved on their own terms. The peace should be on Ukrainians' terms. The way the situation goes should be on Ukrainian terms. The assistance and the support should also be uh, provided on the terms that Ukrainians ask. And that means 
weapons, that means defensive and offensive, that means support in the now for accountability and uh, support in the future for the transitional process. So that is the biggest. And I think the third one is like, is uh, thank you for the support you're already providing. Thank you for the attention you're already showing. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for coming here. To learn more about the Human Rights Center Smina and their work in Ukraine, visit smina.ua, said M-I-N-A dot U-A. A huge thanks to everyone involved in the seminar. And thank you for listening.